Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Let's try that again. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Good morning. Hey, if you are, if you've got little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church, you can dismiss them at this time to the foyer. The teachers will meet them, take them down. You can go, or you can follow them down, see where they'll be, and then you can come back and pick them up as soon as the service is over, and those teachers would really appreciate that. Um, it's good to be with you. If you're a guest here with us, I encourage you, they're in front of you in the chair. There's a welcome guest card. Would you fill that out? Let us know that you're here, how we can pray for you, how we can minister to you. It would be a great joy to do that. We are returning to 1 Corinthians. I'd like you to turn there, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 actually reminds us of the danger of thinking something could never happen to us. On October 26, 2000, Destiny Lopez began the day as any other first grader at Yowens Elementary School in Aleph, Texas, began their day. By 2.20 p.m. that afternoon, everything had changed. She was walking up to her teacher's desk to turn in an assignment, and she tripped and she fell on her pencil. Pencil pierced her abdomen, traveled to the right ventricle of her heart. The wound did not bleed because the pencil was there. The teacher quickly dismissed the other students to class, lay on the floor next to Destiny to keep her calm, talked about Barney and Barbie and what they'd done that day. Paramedics arrived very quickly and took the little girl to Ben Taub Hospital where they performed open heart surgery and they removed the pencil and she has now recovered and is a 23-year-old little girl, uh, girl now in college. But imagine a child nearly stabbing herself to death by simply tripping on her way to the teacher's desk. Just didn't seem possible, but it happened. Temptation can approach that same way. What doesn't appear to be a trap at all can quickly become a potential lethal snare, which is, really illustrates Paul's point where we finished last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, let those who think they stand take heed lest they fall, and, and the falling is into temptation. Greek mythology, the siren was a creature that was half bird and half woman who lured sailors to destruction by the sweetness of her song. According to Homer, the sirens on an island in the Aegean were particularly dangerous. Their song was so irresistible that sailors, that, uh, sailors say every ship passing that way was lured to the rocks and to uh, be wrecked. The Greek hero Odysseus, of course, escaped this danger by stopping the ears of his crew with wax so they were deaf to the sirens, and he himself, wanting to hear the music, had himself tied to the mast so he couldn't steer the ship out of course. We've made our way to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. I invite you to turn there if you're new with us today. Uh, we're making our way through a section of 1 Corinthians that dealing with freedom in Christ. It's a very important study, and it's helped us as we've gone through there to develop some principles for making gray area decisions about situations that the Bible neither condemns uh, nor commands. Beginning in chapter 8 and all the way through chapter 10, verse 33, Paul deals with uh, freedom in Christ and the errors that popped up regarding Christian liberty in the Corinthian church. And we are approaching the end of that instruction. Now beginning in chapter 8, the circumstances that required Paul to step in are revealed. Some in Corinth uh, eating meat that had been offered to or dedicated to idols. They're eating it. They believe they had the freedom to do that. And Paul confirms that they do have the freedom to do that in many things. Uh, but we saw a principle there, the overarching consideration when addressing a freedom decision is how your decision affects other people. Then in chapters 9 through 10, Paul gives them three examples to help them understand the freedom issue. Uh, two of them are from his own life and what it looks like to limit your freedom uh, for the sake of other believers in the church and for the sake of the unredeemed. And now as we saw, uh, Paul gets to the end of chapter 9, he makes it clear that freedom can be a treacherous thing. Being forgiven of your sin, never ever to be under any condemnation, can create circumstances in your life where failure to rein your life in can cause you to, to be set aside as disqualified for the work that the Lord has set before you. In other words, you engage in a sin and you are trapped temporarily and, and by your temptation and so set aside by the Lord for the work that he would have for you to do and set aside that you can't do it. Now, the Corinthians were a prideful church. They are a prideful bunch. We see this over and over again. So, so very confident that they knew uh, what they needed to know about their freedom and what they could do and why they could do it. So Paul cautions them in chapter 9, verse 24. Just look there quickly with me. Very important passage, which really springs us in uh, to that next section. He says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? 
Paul says this is common knowledge. You understand that. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone, verse 25, who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, he says, an imperishable. Verse 26, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline, verse 27, my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be, will not be disqualified. So Paul is making sure then, as he gives them this warning, that the Corinthians understand that they'll need to reign in their body, limit their freedom for the sake of their spiritual health. He wants them to know that uh, being too sure of themselves, too confident in their freedom, uh, can have drastic consequences. Decisions made now, really the way the Greek is formed, as we saw, the decision made now can create a situation in the future where they're taken captive or where they're disqualified. Now, Paul uh, starts this next section in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, and he's going to use Israel as, as a, this is the third illustration or the third example. And this is the example of how freedom can be treacherous. And so he's going to use Israel then as the example of what not to do. And so he connects Israel of old to the New Testament church in verses 1 through 4. And we saw that. Now Israel had many benefits and we went through all of that. And then as he gets to it, but in spite of all that, Paul says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them... God was not well pleased, for they were laid low, he said, in the wilderness. And Paul just wants to show that the Jews had everything. Uh, they had all this benefit. They had all this revealing of God's power. The nations knew who they were. There was a lot of uh, cohesion there with the nation of Israel, uh, knowing that what God could do, and they misused it. They complained. They fell into false worship. They imposed on God's patience. And eventually, they were set aside. That's the thing. Paul reaches back and connects this modern church to the nation of Israel. He's already said back in 927, it's possible to get out there a little ways and find yourself disqualified by what you've allowed in your life. Paul the believer, talking about himself, disqualified for service. So this is exactly what happened with some of the Jews. So he makes immediately this illustration of how that, what that looks like. He wants to make sure then, as we saw this last time, that the church in Corinth understands that the benefits of salvation will not deliver them from being set aside if they misuse their freedom any more than the original group of Israelites, some no doubt were truly redeemed, who saw all that God did, did not make it to the promised land because they fell into sin and were trapped and they were disqualified for God's purposes. Now to show how serious a history lesson this really is, Paul draws Israel's experience, Israel's experience then right into the present. Verse six, look there if you would, chapter 10, verse six. Now, these things happened as examples for us. So now there's no question why he's using Israel as an illustration. He says, listen, you see all that that happened, that happened for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. We saw that the word examples is the word types. By types then, he is talking about everything he said and is gonna say. These things then all foreshadow what could happen with the Corinthians. That's the point. That's why Paul makes this illustration and then says what he says. And nothing appears to be excluded here. So when he says these things, then he's going to cover being delivered from Egypt. And he's going to connect that then to the modern church being delivered from sin. Back with Egypt, with Egypt being baptized into Moses. But of course that points to Christ, being baptized into Christ then in the modern church. He's looking back and being fed by the manna and the water that pointed to the Lord's table. These things didn't deliver the people when they misused their freedom, even though they saw all God's power and understood what God wanted them to do. They were not delivered in the misuse of their freedom, and they failed to reign in their lives. So these types occurred for a purpose, and that is, Paul says in verse 6, for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So that the modern church then wouldn't have a desire for, and the, and the word there is for lust, that craving, lust for evil things. And this passage is an example then to the church of what can happen if you do that. Now Paul gives some examples of the evil things and these things come right into the New Testament church and become a warning. So now Paul's connected it. There's no, there's no uh, misunderstanding here. This is not a disconnected group of people that didn't have anything to do with the modern church. What went on here is very relevant, Paul says, for your situation to the Corinthian church. And of course it, it immediately transfers to the New Testament church all along. Okay, So this is then, as he looks at this, this is what it looks like when freedom is abused. And then he's going to use four examples of what that looked like. Now, in verses 7 through 10, we saw some of the evil things Paul was speaking of. These things can be done inside the freedom each believer has in Christ, which can create an area where they'll be disqualified. And we saw four things. 
as we worked our way through, which caused the believer in the church age to put themselves in the same position the Israelites put themselves in with perhaps the same end result. And we'll just look at them briefly. Look at verses 7 through 12, if you would. Just read along with me, and I'll do it quickly, okay? Do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Paul's first warning to the church is against participating in idolatry. This just comes right up into the modern situation that Paul's dealing with in the Corinthian church. Because here's these people, they are free in Christ, they can go and eat the meat of the temple, we've already talked about that, and drink and celebrate and all of those things that they're doing uh, in the name of a deity that doesn't really exist, because there are no gods except one God. And Paul's reference here is from Exodus 32, you remember the statue of the bull calf that was made uh, of gold when the Israelites worshipped there at Mount Sinai while Moses was gone. Paul says that the Israelites, here it is, sat down, that's a deliberate act, they ate and they drank at the idol feast. And in this case, it was the golden calf. And in the course of the feast, to no one, of course, because with false gods, nobody's home. Okay, so all the temples aren't, none of the temples are filled with anyone. There's no God there. So nobody's being worshipped. But in the course of that, they were actually drawn into idol worship. Uh, the meat and the drink and the frivolity turned into an actual heart attitude of worshiping a false deity. That was the problem. So the connection was obvious. The Corinthians were in danger of idolatry by a very similar act. In their arrogant self-confidence and in their freedom, they're eating meat and drinking drink offered to a deity. They know that it doesn't, it's not offered to anyone. An idol is no one. You're not, you're not commended to God if you, if you don't eat. You're not uh, rejected by God if you do eat. It has, God doesn't care about eating and drinking. Okay, so they've established all of that. Paul confirmed that that's correct. But the problem is celebrating a feast day to the deity, a wedding dedicated to one of the many false gods, uh, in and of itself, they're free to do that. But in the course of doing that, they could be trapped by their foolish overconfidence and find themselves then doing what the Israelites did and disqualifying themselves and making themselves ineffective for God's work. See, that's the issue. Now look at verse 8. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. So number two, Paul's second warning is against participating in immorality. Paul's reference here is, of course, from Numbers 25, 1 and 2. We saw that. We won't go back there. It's just the end of the story of Balaam and the talking donkey and Balak and the Moabites and all the bad ending that occurred there, okay? And the connection then is obvious. The Corinthians were in danger of immorality by a very similar act. How? Well, in their arrogance, self-confidence, and their freedom, they're eating meat, and they're drinking drink offered to an idol, offered to a deity, perhaps in the temple of the deity. And they're certainly free to do that inside their freedom in Christ. There's no condemnation there. There's no deity in the temple. Uh, the meat that they're eating isn't, it doesn't belong to the deity. There's nobody home there, but in the course of the Corinthian worship, there were Bacchanalian feasts and temple priestesses, and the alcohol was there to help with inhibitions, and we looked at all that, and of course, in doing that, they could become trapped and find themselves doing what the Israelites did and be enticed with immorality and disqualify themselves and make themselves ineffective for God's work. And immoral temptations abound today in many activities that, uh, that we find available to the believer in their freedom in Christ. And in allowing one thing, you may pave the way for immoral behavior. So it's a consideration, Paul says. Make sure that you don't do this. Look at verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpent. So Paul's just bringing stuff from the past into the present and making a connection with the modern church. Don't let us try the Lord, he said. So that's the third warning. Questioning the Lord, putting him to the test. Paul says... Don't get into a position where your freedom is actively creating a condition where you're testing God. How's that happen? Well, in your freedom, you can do things that put God to the test. Something he said not to do, you do. Will you be condemned? No. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You're not going to be condemned, but in your freedom, what are you doing? You're putting God to the test. You're doing something that he said not to do, something that he said to do, you're not doing, and in the midst of that freedom, you've tried the Lord. How have you tried him? Well, uh, by your misuse of freedom, maybe you're testing God's justice or his patience or his ability to supply your needs. Paul's reference here is from Numbers 21, 4 through 7, and we saw that, it, and we looked at that at length. It has to do with answering the prayers of the Israelites in their, in their sojourning. They, uh, they were delivered a victory over the king of Ered, who had taken some of them captive, and they prayed to the Lord. He said, go ahead. And so they went and they attacked and they got their captives back and they had a great conquest. And when they were all done with that, they had to travel quite a long ways. And they're hungry and they're thirsty. And on the way now, after a big victory, 
and the Lord had been providing for them all along the way with manna and with water, they start complaining about their situation and wishing they could go back to Egypt. And they questioned the Lord about his motives for them and his ability to supply for their needs and all the other things that go along with this testing the Lord. And it was easy for the Corinthians to church to fall into this as well. It was easy to do, it's easy to do in our casual world. Paul says, bring your body into subjection. Reign your life in. Don't overestimate your freedom to disobey. Don't put the Lord to the test. You may find yourself disqualified. Don't do things the Lord has said not to do. That's exactly what the Israelites did. He tells the modern church, don't test the Lord. If he says to do it, do it. If he says not to do it, don't do it. Are you going to be condemned eternally? No. If you, if you cause, if you do those things, will that condemn you for, and put you away from the Lord? It will not. However, he says not to do it because that's what the Israelites did and found themselves set aside so that they couldn't complete the work the Lord had set before them. Now we saw in verse 10, Paul's fourth warning. Look at verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. It was a common problem. In fact, 22 times in the Old Testament, we see the word grumble. In their freedom, they complain. That's Paul's fourth warning against complaining. He tells the church, listen, Israelites did this all the time. Don't you do it. Grumble, gonguzo, the Greek verb, it literally means to whisper secretly, to complain in a low tone, to spread discontent. Paul says to the church, don't do this. That's what Israelites did. And they were set aside. Here's the thing. Paul lists this freedom in the same breath as idolatry, immorality, and putting God to the test. So complaining is listed in the same categories as those things. It's a pretty serious company. And Paul brings it into the present in chapter 4, verse 8 through 21 in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians were grumbling about Paul. They grumbled about his leadership as an apostle, his, his form of teaching, the content of his teaching, which they felt didn't suit them. They didn't, they didn't want to support Paul monetarily, and so Paul had to bring them uh, to task about that in chapter 8. He said, listen, I have the right to that. You, you should be supporting me. They didn't want Paul ringing in on their lifestyle. He didn't, they didn't want him saying anything about what they were doing. They didn't want his opinions. They didn't want his visits. They did their best to disrespect him, to make him feel uncomfortable. They, Paul's envoys, his letters, which uh, he, they brought from him. They didn't want that. Least of all, they didn't want a visit from Paul because that would disturb their relaxed lifestyle in this pagan Corinthian church. So they just complained about it. Paul says, don't grumble about it. Don't whisper about it. Don't be discontent. And the, thing is, the same thing goes on now in the modern church with whisperers. The topics are anything and everything that doesn't suit some certain person, see? And the Corinthians in the modern church in their arrogant, self-confident freedom place themselves in a position of disqualification, see? In the course of doing that, they could be trapped by their foolish overconfidence and just find themselves doing what the Israelites did and disqualifying themselves and making themselves ineffective for God's work. You have the right to complain. The Corinthians had the right to complain. The Israelites, in their physical condition, a long walk, probably hungry, probably hot, probably thirsty, they had the right to complain, but it's a misused freedom. The Lord says, don't do it. He told the Israelites not to do it. He told Paul through the church in Corinth not to do it. He tells the modern church not to do it. God hates it. And then Paul repoints this whole discussion. Unless someone says, you know, what's, this have, what's all this have to do with us? Listen, this is not us. So he gets to verse 11. He says, now, these things happen to them. Again, he just wants to make sure he repoints this. Understand, Paul says, I'm not just talking about a disconnected event. I'm talking about us, Paul says. These things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul concludes this rehashing of these tragedies that overtook the Israelites with a warning to the Corinthian church, one that continues to apply with equal force to everybody who belongs to the New Testament church today. Paul says, these things happen to them as types. Pros nosthesian, which is the Greek noun for admonition, warnings to you. These things happen for warnings. Literally, then Paul says, you get the advantage of a warning. You saw what the Israelites did, don't do those. Particularly those four things, Paul says in this church, don't do those. You get the advantage of a warning. And all the more reason we should learn from them as we are so close to the end. He says, now, these things happen to them, verse 11, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. In other words, we're almost to the true promised land. Israel was working towards the promised land that was a type of the one to come. We are almost to the true promised land. He says, all the more reason to make sure that you understand that what happened in the past was an example, and they were a warning so that you wouldn't repeat them. 
So he just returns to the topic of the Corinthians' attitude towards their freedom. He wants them to understand. He wants them to realize there's more to it than just saying, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. Paul says, you know that, but your knowledge is incomplete. That's what he started with in, verse, in chapter 8. You have knowledge, but it's not complete knowledge. You don't know, he says, as you should know. And so Paul has then, since that time, filled in that knowledge. It's more than just a casual attitude. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I don't care what anybody else thinks. All those things he set aside. It matters what other people think. It matters what the outside world thinks. It matters what the church thinks and what's going on around you and how you may be derailing somebody's walk with the Lord by your freedom. It matters what the world thinks because you may be pulling up, that, that was the word for it, pulling up the road that leads to the gospel, creating obstacles that make it hard for people to receive Christ. And then he gets, of course, into this whole thing with the freedom misused can be just like what the Israelites were doing and they were set aside with whom most were, God was not well pleased. And we looked at, at, uh, we looked at John, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, where the Lord says he's taken people home for their, own, for their sin. It pulls it right into, the, uh, right into the modern church. Now look at verse 12. There's more to it than I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. And here we come back to our opening statement this morning. Verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And again, Paul harkens back to his own plan. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 26 and 27, he goes, this is how I make sure I don't fall, Paul says. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. See, Paul says, listen, I'm just as concerned about this as you are. And this is what I do to make sure that I'm running in my body. And we said before that the spiritual gift of self-control is very important here. As you think about your freedom in Christ. I have a plan, Paul says. I can only use my freedom to become all things to all people if I bring my body under subjection. So Paul gets very specific with the church. Look at verse 12. Instead of they and them and us, and he's talking about Israel and all of that. Now it's him. Very personal. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So it's directly addressed to those who think in their freedom they can do all this stuff. Okay? And therefore takes in what we know about God's nature, how he deals with misused freedom, how he deals with idolatry and immorality and testing God and complaining. We already know how he deals with those things because they were given to us as an example and a warning way back in Israel's time. And he brings it right up to the front. You already know. Therefore, you already know how God deals with it. Therefore, if you think you stand, take heed that you don't fall. So Paul places then the burden on the will and the conscience of the individual Christian. You have the Holy Spirit there as a resident teacher, and you have to engage your will. Paul says you have to be aware of what's happening around you. Will your actions block the road to the gospel? Will they cause other believers to be derailed in their walk? That's your responsibility, he says. Will your actions put you in a place of jeopardy and disqualification through your overconfidence? Will you put yourself in a place where you're just actively disobeying God? And although you're not condemned eternally, God just says, listen, if you're going to continue this, I'm not going to be able to use you. You're not my witness. You're tearing up the road to the gospel. You're hurting other believers with what you do. So God's judgment on the Israelites' sin, listen, are not merely the scattered, unrelated events of past history of his people. They're not just that. Okay, God's acts of judgment in the past are examples of what displeases him now in the modern church. And we have this very casual attitude about, you know, how we do our Christianity. It seems like it's some free form, you do whatever you want and however, whatever works for you. Listen, Paul, Paul said exactly the opposite of that. I run the course that's laid out for me. I don't get to pick my own cross-country course and then just run it and hope I can win. I box, but not as just wildly swinging and not trying to connect. I have a purpose. And there's some boxers in here. I know Alex was, yes, you have a purpose in the way you go about it so you can connect and score points. Paul says, listen, there's a plan here and I'm giving you mine. You can't just do whatever you want. And then we saw last time from 1 Corinthians 11, 27, even when he judges, see, even when you've, you know, you come in and take, in this particular case, taking communion in, in a way that uh, dishonors Christ, Paul says, for that reason, a number you're weak, a number are sick, and a number sleep, euphemistic for dying. Paul says, but he says, even in God's judgment, he shows that we are his, 
but he acts nonetheless if you're misusing your freedom, see. God continues to judge the misuse of freedom in similar ways. And disqualification from the work and the job God has set before you can be the result then of misuse freedom. And the four examples that we just looked at and the ones we looked at previously about not being concerned about what's happening among, as the world watches you, not being concerned what happens as other believers are watching you. So all these things that have to be brought in and factored into the equation as you think about the gray area decisions that come to you on a regular basis. And some of these decisions, as we said way back, will be decisions that are for this moment, that you've chosen, that you've taken evaluating these things. Okay, this is what I have to do now. And some of those decisions will be ones that are far-reaching, that you make and continue to make because this is the way you want to pattern your life because you've made some reasons, you've understood the reasons why this decision to do this certain thing in your freedom would be bad for you. So, Paul gives the church this tremendous passage now that he's laid all this out that calls to mind God's faithfulness. And we stopped here last time, and I've added a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't have time to add last week. But we stopped here last time because this is so important that even in the midst of misused freedom, even in the midst of choosing things that bring you into bondage, even in the midst of uh, being disobedient to the Lord in your freedom, and getting yourself in a position where you're trapped, you see this marvelous passage that calls to mind God's faithfulness, even in the midst of our foolish overconfidence. Look at verse 13. Here it is. This is amazing. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now you know the context of that passage. It gets quoted a lot. It's a very important passage that has to do with sin. But in the context, beloved, put it together. How did you get in that position to begin with? The misuse of your freedom in Christ, not being condemned, engaging in activities that the Lord has already said not to engage in, and you find yourself trapped. And we're going to see those words. It's just amazing. A temptation. A Greek noun, perasmos. Word can be translated and is translated trial. And the words are very closely related. Temptation, trial, depending on uh, how the translators put it in there. But both very closely related way of proving something. Uh, things perhaps that we would consider evil uh, are used by God to pr prove our faith and, 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 and perfect us. Uh, but here, the word appears in context to be an enticement to sin. And I think that's the, uh, the translators got it right in the NAS, NASB. It's an enticement to sin. Uh, in the context of what we've just been looking at and misuse of freedom, you place yourself in a position where you're enticed to sin. And I think that's the right way to look at that. Certainly arising from believers' overconfidence, uh, from not evaluating, from not reining the life in. It may come from inward desires or from outward circumstances uh, or more likely a combination of both cir circumstance and the flesh uh, springing from an opportunity that the foolish use of freedom has created. Get that? It's likely a combination of both circumstance that you find yourself in and the flesh springing from the opportunity, listen, that the foolish use of freedom will create in your life. This is a logical conclusion for Paul as he wraps these ideas up. He brings you in and just says, listen, this is where you're going to get. This, and in, in the grace that's provided here, in, in the deliverance that's provided here, and in the uh, faithfulness and care that's provided here in the passage, we also get to understand where misuse of freedom eventually leads. See, And even in the midst of the mess that you bring on yourself, and it is a mess because it says no temptation has, here's the word, lambano, overtaken you. Perfect, active, indicative. So, in other words, something you've done in the past has a completed result, and the completed result is, right now, you've been taken captive. In your freedom to do what you wish, without taking in all the considerations, you've created a circumstance that has created a situation in your life now where you've been taken captive. The word is sometimes used to refer to wild game captured by a hunter, except this situation then is of your own making. You set the trap, 
and you stepped in it. And you set the trap by a misuse of freedom. That's the idea. So the circumstance is then a misuse of freedom, as you see. The problem is you've been taken captive by sinful behavior. And maybe you've been drawn in by your flesh and your lust. Maybe you've been re-exposed. Uh, maybe you re-exposed yourself to something you've been delivered from in the past and your body desires those things again. See? There's all kinds of different circumstances perhaps that will connect there. The bottom line then is this, that you in your overconfident freedom were not as careful to, as Paul's words would say, run as one who wishes to get the prize as you should have been. And you were not disciplining your body and making it your slave, as Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 9, where the important issues of self-control were brought into play. And so you find yourself then in the misuse of your freedom, then in this problem of being taken captive by sinful behavior. Now, this flows right together with what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. All things are lawful, but I'm going to be taken captive by anything. And so we understand how that can happen, okay? Now, it's not a permanent captivity, is it? Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And perhaps he has to bring discipline into your life. Perhaps he, you can recognize what's going on and you'll look for that way of escape. There's a whole bunch of things I'm going to try to tie together because we looked at a bunch of passages in the past and they are so important to this one. So we're going to take just a few minutes and tie some of these things together that we've looked at over time. If you remember, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you don't have to turn there, I'll give you the passages, but you can if you'd like. Paul told the believers in Rome to what? Present your bodies, finish it, beloved, a living sacrifice. That's right. And that, beloved, will war against being stamped in the image of the world. Be not conformed, that's the word for stamped, but don't be stamped in the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember when we looked at that? We just broke that all apart because that's so key as you deal with the world. Because many people find themselves totally struggling all the time with these worldly things. And what's happening really is they're not renewing their mind by the word. They're just being stamped in the image again over and over again of the world that they don't have to answer to anymore. So they find themselves constantly dealing with over and over with the same thing because there's no renewal of the mind going on. And that process of the word filtering through this flesh, which is here, and the emotions and all the things that go along with that, thought processes, it's not being purified by the word. And so instead you're just being stamped over and over again. So very important idea, and I want you to kind of assimilate that, okay? Paul said it this way in Romans 6, 12. Your flesh is now ruling you like a king temporarily. Remember that? So Paul affirms again the gospel of salvation by grace and the freedom of the law of Christ. We looked at all of those words, okay? You're under the law of Christ, which is the gospel. You stand in grace, not condemned, because Christ took all the punishment and the payment that was due on himself. So, the gospel of salvation by grace and the freedom of the law of Christ does not free me up, beloved, to sin so that God can keep exercising grace on behalf of my multiplied sinfulness. You can do that, but the Lord has already said that you may disqualify yourself and you're going to be set aside for my, I can't use you for my purposes anymore. And we saw in Romans 6 that when you were saved, sin as a tyrant was defeated. Remember that? The first part of Romans chapter 6, sin has no dominion over you. You don't continue in sin that grace may abound. No. For he who has died to sin doesn't live in it any longer. Sin is a defeated foe. You are in Christ. And his holiness is your holiness. And his life to God is your life to God. And after his substitutionary death, sin has no more dominion over him. And because of your death in Christ, it has no more dominion over you. And we saw that as we went through Romans 6, 8 through 11, as we went through that whole book. Do you remember that? It has no more dominion over you, okay, because it has no more dominion over Christ. He substituted himself for sin once for all, the just for the unjust. And so now, because it doesn't have dominion over him, and it only did because he submitted himself to it, correct? And because you've died in Christ, it has no dominion over you. Now, just as a side note, maybe that's not been... It's very hard to realize that that's actually the case for you. And I think the, re the reason why that is is because you didn't actually die a physical death. And then get up and say, oh, whew, glad that's over. That was painful and the sin is dead. You died in Christ. Christ died the painful death. Christ died the physical death. And sometimes it's hard to realize and assimilate that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus for you. That's your reality. That's who you're known by. You're forgiven and set free from sin. Always. See? And that's an amazing thing. And sometimes it's hard to take it in because you didn't physically die. You died in Christ. So, 
Paul just affirms this salvation by grace and the freedom of the law of Christ has set you free, okay? His holiness, your holiness. His life to God, your life to God, okay? Now, you're never then, keep this in mind, a forced sinner. You're never a victim of some wretchedness that has not been conquered in your life, okay? Understand that. So in your freedom in Christ, you're never a forced sinner. You've been delivered from the previous master. He has no more dominion over you. You've died to sin. And that's an important thing to assimilate into this freedom in Christ, okay? You're not being forced to continue to commit the sin over and over again that you're committing. Even though you're not condemned for it, you still continue to be com uh, committing it, and it's setting you aside, and you're not being effective for God's work. And maybe you have an ineffective testimony. Maybe you haven't, you haven't led anybody to Christ in 10 years, or even witnessed to somebody. So those are things that should be in your mind. Why am I not being effective here? Why is my ministry not being effective? Well, what's the problem here? See, and all these things play a factor, okay? But you're never a forced sinner. You're never a victim. And if we understand the struggle against sin, we'll also understand that you are, as it were, under the protective righteousness of Jesus himself. And his dominion and his care will be exemplified here then in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. His dominion, his care. Okay, no temptation is overtaking you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Who got you into the position to begin with? I did. You did. In your misuse of your freedom. You got yourself in a pinch, didn't you? And you've exposed yourself to stuff that you were delivered from, and now your body wants it again. Or you just started participating in things you should have participated in, and it took you captive. Who got yourself in that position? You did. But in God's sovereignty and in his love for you and in the grace in which you stand, he still will provide a way for you to escape. You see, and that's the whole point of the passage. You're not a forced sinner and you're not a victim. You've been set free. And there's so many promises of God's dominion over you and his care for you. I mean, look at those. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. That's your position. All spiritual blessings. You have the resources you need. Ephesians 1.3. He's working in us to work out his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And I guess the question is, as I read the other day in a, in a tweet by C.S. Lewis, um, you can either serve like Judas or like John. I mean, you know, there's a bunch of ways you can serve, and you, you can pick, okay? He who has began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, Philippians 1.6. Faithful is he who calls you who will also bring it to pass, for Thessalonians 5.24. Sounds like God has some, some authority over your life, doesn't he? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, Jude 24, we are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter 1, 5, and on and on and on. We could just study that if we wanted to. So you're not a forced sinner. You're not, you're not made to do it. You're not a slave. You're not a victim. In your freedom in Christ, you've placed yourself in a position where you've been taken captive temporarily. Temporarily, because he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Now, how you arrive up in heaven will have a lot, will be determined a lot by how you understand what's supposed to be going on in your own life. Okay? Which is why there's some who will receive more honor than others, and some who will receive more award than others. It's not, you know, an even heat other than the robe of righteousness. Other than that, it's not an even heat. It's not like modern, you know, schooling today where nobody gets to be first and second and whatever. Okay? The Lord keeps track of all of it. You build. What do we see in 1 Corinthians? You build with wood and hay and stubble or gold and silver and costly stone. And then the fire comes in the judgment, the Brema seat judgment of Christ, and all that's wood, hay, and stubble gets consumed, and whatever is left, that's what you did. It was according to his will. So that's how that all works, see? That's important to know that before we get to the end. Wouldn't you agree? It's nice that we didn't show up there at the Brema seat judgment. God said, well, this is the way I've been judging you all along. Well, that's not very fair. And God's always fair, isn't he? He's always, he's always gracious. He always, he's always just. So, even in the middle of misused freedom and being overtaken, God is still watching over you. See? And all those dovetail so perfectly into 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It just reminds me of John 13, 17, and I say this to you a lot. If you know these things, Blessed, Marquios, happy are you if you do them, see? 
As we think about when Paul says, therefore, because you know how God deals with all of this, therefore, rein in your body. Run the race set out before you that's marked. Box in such a way that score points. Because you know these things, happier are you if you do them, see? Oh, I want to be happy. Don't you? I want to be blessed. I want to have joy. People say that, don't they? They want that. And here it is. Nothing robs all those things more than sinful life habits acted on inside the freedom you have from sin's guilt and punishment. Nothing robs all of that more quickly than just misusing your freedom to go do things you shouldn't be doing. And just as a reminder, because it illustrates what's going on here and what isn't going on here, as I, just a moment ago, I talked about Romans 6.12. I want to come back to it just for a second. We've got a few minutes, so I want to do it. Paul gives this command. Here's what he says. Okay, and this dovetails so nicely with what we understand from 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Don't do that, Paul says, which implies that, what? It could be happening. You see? You can be taken captive by your freedom in Christ. In fact, we saw that that's exactly the case. Okay? Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Sin is a defeated foe, but that could be happening in your, in your life. Now, sin is a defeated foe is very, uh, we understand that, but we've never said that sin isn't a force to be reckoned with. It's a defeated foe, but you're going to be forced, you're going to still be dealing and wrestling with this all along your life. It isn't Lord anymore. It isn't our master, but you're going to wrestle with it. Verse 12 tells us that sin is still around giving some orders. I just don't have to listen to it. It doesn't have to be obeyed. And sin is personified here, and it's looked at as a king. So the idea is then, if it doesn't have any right to be king, then don't give it any rights to be king. Now, where does the dethroned king, sin, personified here, where does it want to reign? Well, it says it in verse 12, doesn't it? Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So what's that? That's your flesh. That's your physical body. With all of its members, with all of its organs. With, all of its, with its brain and all of its functions. It's the physical body which sin seeks to rule. That's the only beachhead, if you will, that sin has, is the body. And in your freedom in Christ, you can expose yourself to sinful behavior and be taken captive by it. So when Paul says in Romans 6.12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, you see what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, therefore don't let sin reign in your soul. Paul doesn't say, don't let sin reign in your spirit. Or don't let sin reign in you. He says don't let sin reign in your mortal body because that's the only place that sin can operate. Why? Because the real you, the real self, is holy now. You've been made right with God. You've got imputed righteousness, positional holiness. And that's why we have this struggle in Romans chapter 7. I want the right things. That's coming from the real me. But the body is the real problem for me. And as a result of the misuse of my freedom and ignoring Paul's admonition to make his body his slave, I can put myself in a position like the Israelites of old where the members of my body cause me trouble. The body has its, Paul's words, lusts. The body has its desires. And they cry out for fulfillment, and it demands obedience. But we don't have to answer, see. The body's where that's coming from. And your brain and the thinking processes and your emotions, they're all part of that, see, beloved? That's all part of the flesh. So what it says is then, sin will dominate you then if you let it. You're not supposed to let it. It could be going on. But if you let it, it will dominate you. If you pamper the body, we say this all the time, especially to men. Listen, men, if you pamper your body, if you entice your body, if you entertain your body, if you expose your body to temptation, which can happen when you're misusing your freedom, you're going to have a problem. It's going to find some fulfillment somewhere, and you're going to be taken captive, see? Or you're going to find yourself doing things you don't want to do. And you're not a victim, see? This is your choice. This is what you're doing inside your freedom in Christ. By just saying, I'm free to do this. I can watch this movie. I can go and do this. Yes, you have a yes for that. But not all things edify, do they? Some things take captive. Some things are costly, Romans chapter 6. And all of that can come about as a result of misusing freedom because... It's the body, with all of its sensory factors, when they're open to the elements of this world, become channels through which temptation can draw you into sin. You see? So you have to be careful. 
You have to be aware of what's going on. Not just about how your actions are affecting other believers, just about how your actions are affecting the world as it's watching, but how your own actions affect your own spiritual health. The freedoms you allow can cause you harm. And sin can reign over you like a king. Paul says, don't let it. But it can if you don't deal with it. And it would like to do just that, but it doesn't have to because Paul says, don't let it, which means your will has to be set in motion. Your will is a key factor here. And so that's what Paul had in mind, I think, in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. For, so you've got this part you're playing, right? Your will is in play here. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got the Holy Spirit's residence there. Work it out. You know what you're supposed to be doing. You know where you're having some trouble. You know where to rein your life in. You know how to, to box in such a way as you're not just beating the air and swinging wildly. You know how to run the race. It's laid out before you. The course is clear. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, verse 13, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's that dual thing going on there. The Holy Spirit's at work. God has a plan for you. And also you have some responsibility that you have to pull together. It's not all mystical, you know, let God, you know, let go, just let God. It's, it's all God. It's none of me, you know. You know, the commands of the Bible are not to God. They're to you, okay? When, when Scripture gives a command... You have to read it. That's your responsibility to do it. Yes, you're positionally holy. Practical holiness is the problem, isn't it? So you have to be at work by the Holy Spirit in your life and letting the Word dwell in you richly with all wisdom. See? So you've got to rein your life in, as Paul says. Bring your body into subjection. Run the race following the marked course. Fight but not swinging wildly. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That's vital. Positional holiness is imputed to you at salvation. Practical holiness is a behavior. It's a way of life. And you fight for it all the way along. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul understood that so well. I discipline my body, I make it my slave. Down body. Down. I beat it into subjection because it's the body that brings the problem. And as long as you're in the body, you're going to have the problem. And those are Paul's terms for the struggle, see? And your will is obviously the issue here. And not just here, in many of the verses we've looked at. Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Who's that to, beloved? Who's that verse to? Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Oh God, just make, make sure there's no provision in my flesh in regard to my lust. No. You know where your problems are, don't you? If you really want to talk about sin, then you know where they are. Don't make any provision for it. In other words... Don't store up an opportunity or don't set up an opportunity so that you'll be able to do it. And you know how to do that, don't you? Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Who's that to, beloved? Oh, God, make me walk by the Spirit. He has given you the Holy Spirit, hasn't he? And he's given you freedom from all condemnation of sin. Now, what are you supposed to do? Let the Spirit dwell in you richly, right? Spirit of Christ dwell in you richly. The word dwell in you richly, Galatians and Colossians, both talking about the exact same thing and the exact same benefit that comes from it. So pull all these things together from all these different places. We've studied this over the years, and they all work so closely together. And really, as we get through 1 Corinthians 10, we really see the practical, daily working of using your flesh, of, of using your freedom in Christ incorrectly to see how all the situation is set up, see? If in your freedom you're temporarily making provision for the flesh, let's just put it together, okay? If in your freedom you're temporarily making provision for the flesh, and if in your freedom you are temporarily not walking in the Spirit, okay? And if in your freedom you're temporarily presenting the bodies, the parts of your body as instruments for unrighteousness, Romans chapter 6, then you're going to find yourself captured. And for the true believer, that gets old really fast because that results, beloved, in being set aside from effective work, a powerless witness, not being useful for the master's purposes, perhaps being placed under his discipline. But even there, in the midst of that mess that you set for yourself, the Holy Spirit gives us hope. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Here's, here, now we can come back and just see it because I think the magnitude of it needs to be there. We need to understand how we set ourselves up in this area, Okay. No temptation, so no enticement to sin as a result of misuse freedom. No temptation has overtaken you, literally, 
You're caught by what you allowed in your life. So you set a trap and you got caught and that's the present condition of your life, okay? No temptation has overtaken you, here's the rest of it, but such as is common to man. What's that mean? Every person on the face of the earth, all through the history of fallen man up until the present, are dealing with the exact same issues and will be dealing with the moral temptations of a fallen world that appeal so readily and appear so attractive to our flesh from early in life until the grave. Everybody, everywhere, all time periods, all of it. In other words, so just so that you understand this, it isn't worse for you than anyone else around you or anyone who's come before. So don't give yourself that excuse. Well, you don't understand my past. You don't understand what, I mean, what goes on in my life and how the temptations come and where I lived before I moved here and whatever. It's not worse for you than anyone else around you or anyone who's come before. And I'm not sure that's good news, okay? <laughs> that's just the reality of life. Misery loves company. So you have a lot of company, including your pastor. It's all the same. The things you have to deal with are all the same as everyone else has to, that everyone else has to deal with. But God doesn't stop there, you know, saying, you know, it's what it is and what you're going through. It's not anything special. You're just like everyone else. I mean, you could have stopped right there. That would be like, ah, you know, where's the good news in that? No temptation taking you, but such as common to man. Great. I hope there's more. And there is. Believers can count on help. Look at the next part. And this is the remedy, beloved. Okay, you have the circumstance, you have the problem. Here's the remedy. And God is what? Faithful. God is faithful. God's faithfulness is the remedy, isn't it? Even when we're not faithful. He literally is, and the word is literally, belief-worthy. God is belief-worthy. Faithful to all generations, as Psalm 89, 1 through 8 illustrates for us. Listen to, listen to the psalm. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I'll make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Is it any wonder that got put into a psalm? For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also, what beloved? Surrounds us. God is faithful. Paul just abbreviated this marvelous idea of God's faithfulness, his compassion, his sovereignty over you. Several times Paul asserts that God is faithful, that's true to his promises, constant in his love for his people. He started the letter with that affirmation. In 1 Corinthians 1, 7, he says, so that you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's at work, see. One of the benefits of salvation is God at work in you. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. Paul just establishes that right at the beginning. God's faithful. 1 Corinthians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Will he? Yes. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. Will it? Yes. Without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will it be? Yes, it will be. Are you going to have a struggle right now? Yes. But faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to Pass. That doesn't mean, okay, God, just do it, and I'm not going to worry about what I'm doing. No, Paul gives all the instruction and lays the course out and says, this is what it has to look like, and you have to bring your body into subjection. But listen, faithful is he who calls you, and he'll also bring it to pass. God's not fickle. God's not bad-tempered. He's not random. He's not vacillating. He's not unpredictable like the gods of Greece and Rome. He's not anything like that. I don't know what to expect from these gods, these pagan gods. You know exactly what to expect from the sovereign Lord. He's a, it's a wonderful reality to know that the God of the universe who's given his son to save us 
is unchanging in his faithfulness. And if he gave us the Son to save us, will he not also with him freely give us, what's the rest of that passage? All things, Romans 8. Look at the next part, and we'll get to the principle here. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Faithful God simply will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. In context, Paul's addressing the moral crisis in Corinth, of course, at the time. So anyone reading this letter, having misused their freedom and ended up captured, perhaps were feeling that the strength of the temptation was too great and that they must succumb to it, could grab to that marvelous truth. It wasn't, it's not too great. You've placed yourself in a mess, you set a trap for yourself, and you've been caught in the misuse of your freedom and, and your arrogance and putting yourself in that place. And maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe the Corinthians were overwhelmed here. It just says, listen, it's not too great. The temptation brought on by the misuse of your freedom won't be, here's the word, overpowering. How, Paul? It seems overpowering. I've been caught up in the sins of my old life. It seems like it's been going on a long time. It seems overwhelming. But, here he goes, with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. The principle then, here it is, okay? The temptation comes along. The faithful God who sent his son Jesus will make a way out. He'll make a way out. The mess you made for yourself, the Lord will give you an opportunity to get out. It's really a way of escape. The Greek noun ekbasis, it means the final outcome, a different destination than the one you're currently experiencing. Literally, he'll provide a place to walk or a place to stand. You don't have to be swept away. Uh, the imagery of that word is being trapped in rugged country by obstacles and, and you're, you're, you're managing an escape through a previously unknown way. You're trapped. You're in a box canyon, if you will, in a possible situation that turns out differently than before. And so that you'll be able to, here's the word, endure it. Able to endure it is the Greek verb hupofero, eris, active, infinitive. This is really great, okay? In other words, here it is. In his strength, you will be empowered to continually bear up under whatever pressure that temptation brings to bear. Continually bear up. Not just bear it, but bear up under it. And the idea, in, it really is, a, is an idea of a PR in weightlifting, okay? Not just in the squat position, struggling with the bar, but actually bearing it up. Because the Lord's provided a way for you to escape. You can look at it this way. God, who is powerful as well as faithful, will not allow you to be trapped, even though the situation here is of your own doing, in the misuse of your own freedom. He will not be, allow you to be trapped in a box canyon with no way out. The siren song, if you will, that we started with won't be stronger than God's ability to provide the way out. Whatever the temptation you face, you're not locked in the room with it. There's going to be a way that you can escape. God's going to provide us a door through which you can make your exit. Just as a final note this morning, I'll say this as we close. It's important to understand in all of this that the Lord who delivered you from the guilt and the penalty of your sin is also in the business of delivering you from the power of that sin's grip on your flesh. He's in that business too. That's that process of sanctification. And I'm not sharing a secret with you when I say that it is and will be a real constant battle all of your life. And people who tell me I'm not in any kind of a battle, it just tells me that a couple of things. First of all, you may not even be redeemed. And if you are redeemed, you're so trapped already in sins that have camouflaged themselves in your life that you don't even realize that there should be something going on there. Okay? I'm throwing my hat in the ring with people who are struggling every day. Because that's the reality of, I think, the whole passage that we understand. An active involvement to deliver you from this captured position that you've got yourself in from the misuse of your freedom because you're not condemned. There's nothing you can do to bring yourself into condemnation. So God is in that business of delivering you from the power of the sin that grips your flesh. And these verses assume a desire on your part to find the escape route, okay? And that's where you don't know how I hook up with that and I don't know how you're connected with that. But they assume on your part a desire to, to escape, okay? To actually be looking for that escape route and praying to that end. Have you ever done that, beloved? You don't have to put up your hand. 
You ever done that? Praying for the way of escape. The Lord's always faithful to provide it. Did you know that? And then you also have to pray, Lord, give me the will and the desire always to be motivated to follow it. Spending time in the word, shoring yourself up in those areas. These are not, this is not news to you, I know, okay? But you pray to that end and help will come. And perhaps it's going to be sustained by accountability with a brother or sister in Christ. Perhaps. But listen, if, if, you, if you're not motivated to find the escape route, don't, don't plan on resting on your brother or sister's shoulders, okay? They're not carrying you through that. You, if, you, if you're willing to disobey Jesus, you're not, going to, you're not going to worry about lying to your brother or sister in Christ. It has to be a motivation on your part. I do want to succeed. And now I'm going to get some accountability where other people want to succeed and we can get together and help each other. Perhaps... That escape will be through a manipulation of your circumstances at that point where things are interrupted and you have a, a way of escape, and that certainly happens perhaps through your thought process that the Lord will hijack and bring you back to his word because you're dwelling in it. But you should be looking for that. God's still faithful. He can't deny his promises. And in that light, we, we look at the warnings and the instruction that come by way of his people right to the modern church. He will bring his own to completion by providing a way of escape to usefulness or bringing discipline to bear as needed. And the assurance of this verse is really a permanent comfort and strength to believers. Our trust in the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of all of this turmoil that seems to be the way the world is around us. Amen? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're so grateful for it. We love your word. It is to us. Uh, gold and silver, the sweetest of meals for us as we open your word, even as we see the reality of our own life, and it's not pretty. The reality of our own life and using our own freedom from condemnation to complain or to test the Lord or to be in immorality or to worship falsely. Father, even, even these things and the ugliness of all that, because in our freedom we've allowed ourselves to be there, you are providing a way of escape. Help us to find it. You will bring us to completion. You may have to bring us very, on a very hard road of discipline to get us there, but you will do it nonetheless. So for those who sit here and you are involved in behavior that the scripture would show as sinfulness and you have felt up until this point no guilt, remorse, no pricking of the conscience that you should stop. Can I tell you that perhaps, uh, even though you're here today, perhaps that you, um, even though you may know something about the Bible or your relatives perhaps are very faithful churchgoers, may I suggest to you that you don't know the God who's provided the way of escape at all? Not in the way that you have to. Knowing the facts of who God is and what Jesus did is not the same as assimilating those facts and believing on the name of Jesus Christ confessing him as Lord and believing in your heart God raised him from the dead for you and confessing your sins. Let me encourage you to do that even right now. We don't do this all the time, but the scripture gives us that and segues into that. So I would say right now, confess your sin to the Lord. Believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead. His death on your behalf, a substitutionary death, taking your sin and your guilt and your punishment on himself. Dying, that's the, that's the penalty of sin and rising, showing that he had power over death and sin to be a redeemer. Call on him now. I beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to Christ at this point. And for those of you who, and if you've prayed and received Christ today, would you let us know in that card, that response card before you go, just bring it up to me. It'd be my joy to pray with you and to encourage you and to place uh, some resources in your hand to help you grow. That's what we're about. And of course, if you do know Christ as your Savior, you've been redeemed, you understand uh, the cost of your redemption, and you found yourself uh, feeling very uncomfortable today as you hear the different things Paul says the Israelites did and the modern church still does, and you found yourself right in there, don't justify your behavior. Allow the Holy Spirit to make sense of it for you. Call it what it is, sinfulness, a misuse of freedom. Determine in your heart to not do it anymore. Ask God to provide a way of escape when those thoughts come, the patterns of conversation come back, whatever it is. It doesn't matter how old you are, you're still held accountable the same way as, as a brand new believer. If you've established sin patterns in your life by misuse of freedom and you've been described here, confess those things and repent. God is faithful. Confess your sins to the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive us your sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
constant process of cleansing and walk in a new manner of life. Lord, we thank you for this time and the time of challenge. I pray that you'll do your work by your Holy Spirit. We didn't even touch on even a portion, a fraction of the work that you've done by your Holy Spirit through your word today. So we thank you for that. We thank you that you're alive and active through your word in your church, which is why we go verse by verse through it. Guide us as we do this, as we enter into the Christmas season, the time when we celebrate Christ coming in flesh. We're so grateful that we can just orientate ourselves around what Christ the man said. It's easy to accept a baby, hard to accept the law of God presented in the flesh of Christ as he speaks with authority and tells us what we need to do through his word. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll accept both. And we give you praise today and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen.